0: If you turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter three, um, you'll find Paul in the midst of uh, basically having a very strong word for the Galatian church. The Galatian church had been planted by Paul, and then after he left, there was a group known as Judaizers that came into the church and said, "Hey, you know this salvation that you guys have in Jesus is great, but you also need to do X and Y and Z. You need to add these things to your salvation in order to be really saved. You know, yeah, it's great that you trust in Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised. You also need to keep the Sabbath. You also need to not eat certain foods. And and the list goes on to follow the Old Testament law to be saved. And what Paul came in and said was, uh, your faith was to be in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Everything that he did in his life, portraying and giving us the characteristics of God, showing us what it means to truly obey the will of the Father, to the point to be obedient to death was what Jesus did for us. And his salvation, what he provided for us, was final. It was everything that we need to be justified in the sight of God. So if that is the case, you can add nothing to it. You can't add an iota of brownie points, heavenly brownie points, to your salvation by doing these works. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 and 9 says that. It says, we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest one of us would be able to boast about it or brag. And so, Paul tells them in excuse me, Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, he, he's kind of stout with them. He gives them a heavy word. He's, he, uh, I think they call that um, tough love. He says, foolish Galatians, what are you doing? He says, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Who's fascinated you with some new idea that has drawn you away from simple faith in Jesus Christ? before whose eyes, in other words, you guys have seen Jesus Christ clearly portrayed among you as crucified. He says, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? And so he goes on to give this testimony of how we come to faith in Christ, and as a result of that, we are born again, John chapter 3, to a living hope. And then he calls us to this life of faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And then he gives us the Holy Spirit as a seal that basically guarantees our passage through this life. And the Holy Spirit was a promise that was given to those who believed in Jesus from afar off. From the Old Testament till now, there was a promise. And the the prophets actually spoke of it, how one day... You would no longer approach God on behalf of someone else or be, have a priest approach God for you, but the living God, the spirit of the living God would dwell in us as his temple. And he talked about that in 1 Corinthians where he said that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God inside of us, giving us the power to say no to sin, giving us the ability to to no longer uh, just be kind of guided by our own fleshly desires, but now an ability to say no to sin and to, to obey God. And so he said there that basically we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And because of that, being justified by faith, the law, we can never be justified by it because all the law does is show how sinful that we are. And so he kind of develops that point this week in the second half of chapter 3. He starts in verse 15. Well, before that in last week, he actually said that all the law does is bring a curse on us. And that curse is basically that all have sinned and fallen short of the standard of the law. The law basically says, don't do this, 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 and this. And if you obey these things, then you will live by them. Basically, they will keep you safe from transgressing against God. But what the law does is it condemns a man, because if he breaks one point, one point of all of the commandments, I think there's 613, we know the top 10 as the law, but there's 613 commandments in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, and because of that, if we break one of those, just one, The sinner is condemned to death. And so you go, well, that's not good news. Exactly. So for the Judaizers to come in and say, hey, um, you're saved, but you need to follow the law, they're bringing them back into slavery to a law that could never save you. It could only condemn you. So the question becomes, why did God give the law after the promise that he made to Abraham? So we'll get to that. But in verse 15, he starts in this week's passage by saying, Brethren, or brothers and sisters, I speak in the manner of men, though it's only a man's covenant, yet it is confirmed no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed, the promises were made. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, As of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say that the law, which was four hundred and thirty years later, cannot annul or make void the covenant that was confirmed before God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For the inheritance is of the law, excuse me, for if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. And so I don't know about you guys, but I read that section of Scripture and it makes my head spin. Because Paul uses quite a bit of technical language. I'm not a lawyer. Anybody else in here a lawyer? Hopefully not, because I'm going to butcher this thing. But the reality is, is Paul is a very technical speaker. He gets down to the the nuts and bolts. So I'm going to try and package this in a way that I can understand, and hopefully you're more on my level. Because I'm not at Paul's level. I'm reading this going... It seems like to hear I'm listening to a court case. I'm reading the proceedings that were typed down by the court secretary. And so what Paul is saying is that if salvation does not come through obeying or keeping the law, then why did God give it in the first place? What was the point of getting the law if it couldn't save us? Doesn't God only give us what we need? And the answer is still yes, by the way. We're going to kind of unravel that. But he's giving us the relationship between what God did for Abraham. He gave him a promise and the law that was given through Moses. Now, God gave Moses the law. God's not contradicting himself by giving things that, two things that seem to contradict one another. God's promise to Abraham we read in Genesis 15, but he originally gave it to him in Genesis 12. He says, in you all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. So I'm just going to turn there real quick because it's important to see what God told him. Genesis 12. God ever tells you something, write the thing down so you can look back later when you start to doubt it. We have it in Genesis so we can go back and look at it. God promised Abraham. Verse 12, chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, he, early on he was called Abram, and then God gave him a new name, Abraham, which means father of nations, plural. But at the beginning, his name was Abram. We won't get into that today. But he said, the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country, leave your family, leave your father's house, and go to a land that I will show you. So that was the first thing that God told Abram to do. Verse 2, he says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. So many people want to hold on to that first part and say, wow, God told Abram he was going to make him a great nation and bless him and make him his name great. He's going to have a family name that everybody wants. But here's the purpose. The last part of verse 2, he says, and as a result of it, you're, you're going to be a blessing to others. God has blessed us so that we can be a blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God promises blessing and protection, blessing that will end up being a blessing to others and protection for God's name's sake not because Abram's a great guy. And so we see God making a promise to Abram. If God makes a promise, it's going to take place. It may not take place now. It might have to be waited for. And so he made a promise to Abraham, and the reality of that is that promise is an everlasting promise. It's a promise that keeps going. And we looked at it last week in Genesis 15, because in Genesis 15, what happened? Abram got there, and he said, well, how, am I, how do I know that you're going to give me a descendant? Lord, you said you're going to make me a father of nations, and in me, all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. How can I do that? I don't have a descendant. That's what we looked at last week in Genesis 15. So how do how do I know that you're going to bless all the other nations through my descendants? I don't even have a one born in my house. And the Lord reaffirmed His promise. He said, I'm going to do it. Just wait upon me. And I love this because in Genesis 15 He actually reaffirmed His promise and, and Abram saying, basically said, well, how do I know that you're going to bless me? The word of the Lord came to him, verse 4. He's not happy. He's not... He did very good. <laughs> I was just translating for everyone. He's not happy. Poor guy. So the Lord, he, he made a promise... And then, uh, remember last week we talked about the, kind of a creepy pass. I call it a creepy passage. Basically, the Lord said, why don't you take these animals? He listed off a bunch of animals. And Abram cut them in half, and he laid them out. And we said, well, why did he do that? Well, in order to make a promise in those days, they would cut an animal in half. And then the two people making the agreement would pass between it. They wouldn't write it down. They'd pass between it. Basically, they would both be witnesses that if either one of us break this promise then we're going to be like these animals. We're going to be dead. It's going to be over. So don't break the promise, right? Get the simple message. But what happened is that when the promise was getting ready to be made, Abram fell asleep. And then the only person that passed through it was the Lord himself. So the promise was not made based on Abram's ability to keep the promise. The promise was made based on God's ability to keep the promise. And I love that because I'm a promise breaker. I, I break promises all the time. Not always because I mean to or because it's inconvenient. I can promise Lucy one thing. I get doing three other things. And then later, Kelly will go, hey, you kind of told her you're going to do this. Oh, the last thing I want to do is break promises to my daughter. I want her to know that I'm someone that can be trusted. I want her to know that I, I, I want her to trust the Lord who makes me a promise keeper. God's promises, he never breaks them, he never forgets, he never falls asleep, he's not asleep at the wheel. So I love this because here we have, back in Galatians 3, the promise was to Abraham and to his seed, singular, and what Paul points out is his seed was Jesus. It wasn't Isaac, it wasn't Jacob. The promise was in the descendant by the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus means God is my salvation. Joshua is the name. And so that promise was being fulfilled that he made in Genesis 3, verse 15. In the very beginning of the Bible, right after the fall, the Lord said, hey, because of what has happened here, because of this breaking and eating the fruit from the tree that I told you not to eat from, there's a curse involved. There's going to be enmity between the seed of the serpent satan and all of his henchmen if you want to call it that and the seed of the woman and there's only been one seed of the woman ever born and that's jesus christ conceived of the virgin mary by the holy spirit and so we have this promise being fulfilled and explained here so paul says i speak in the manner of men though it is only a man's covenant yet it is confirmed no one annuls or adds to it When you make a covenant with someone, if you and I would make a covenant or an agreement with someone, a promise, the only one who can break that is the person who made it. The only one that can change that agreement, say you have an agreement between you and another business person, or you and a a bank that you're going to buy a house from, the only one that can change that agreement is you. Maybe you want to get a second mortgage, maybe you want to change the mortgage, you want to pay it off sooner, and you want to change the language in it. The only person that can go and change that agreement is the one who signed it. Someone else comes along and changes it that didn't sign it, they're going to go jail. It's fraud. So the Lord is the only one that can change that promise. No man. Now to Abraham, verse 16, and his seed were the promises made. That promise was made to Abraham and his seed. The promise was made to Jesus. How cool is that? God made a promise with himself and he confirmed it by himself. He's the only one I can know that can do that. He's God in three persons, but in one. My mind, you know, there's all these illustrations that don't really wrap your mind around it. But then it says, And to your seed, who is Christ, verse 17, And this I say, that the law which was 430 years later cannot annul, cannot change, or make void the covenant that was confirmed before By God in Christ, that it should be make the promise of no effect. Listen to this. When God made the promise to Abram, who made the promise? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So when that promise was made, Jesus was involved in that. The Trinity was in agreement. And so I I always think about the Father making a promise to Abram, which is true, but Jesus was involved in that agreement. Knowing full and well the lamb that was slain before time began, Jesus Christ knew that he was going to have to suffer the cross, despising the shame, and give his life for the ransom, the redeeming, the buying back from slavery of all mankind, all those who would put their faith in him. And so he knew this promise that God made to Abram, he knew it would cost him. He was fully aware. He counted the cost first. And so it says, <clears throat> confirmed by fo- before by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, if we inherit our salvation by the law, then it's no longer according to promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So if our salvation is from the law, then it makes it better than the promise that God made. And what he's going to make the, the case for here in these next few verses is that the, the law was temporary. The law required a mediator, but God made the promise man-to-man, one-on-one. He didn't need a mediator, and, uh, and it's a promise that will be fulfilled long-term. So in verse 19, he continues, he says, What purpose, then, does the law serve? Why was the law given if salvation couldn't be had by the law? And then he answers, he says, It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only. So if the, prom- the promise was made with one person, but a mediator is given <laughs> to help two parties come to an agreement. So when you're buying a house, this is the one thing I can think of, when you buy a house, there's usually a realtor involved, right? And then there's a seller and a buyer. They don't normally get together and like have lunch. There's usually a realtor in the middle. Now, they make their cut, but basically what they do is they make sure all the paperwork lines up. And then they make sure that this bank, okay, he can get the money, and this bank, okay, we'll accept the money. And then everything gets paid for, and all the stuff in the middle gets done. There's a mediator involved. When the law was given, the law was given on Mount Sinai. It was given by God. Paul says to angels... And then the angels gave it to Moses. Crazy, right? So it's not first hand, not second hand, but the law was given third hand, according to Paul. So there's a, a, a law given, and the law was given third hand. It wasn't given directly by God. I don't know why, it doesn't say here. But he says the law was given. What was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions, because of sin what's a transgression? Does anybody know? It's a transgression. It's a trespass. Someone that sees a sign that says, purple paint, don't hunt here, and they go anyway. You know, it's, it, it's missing the mark. It means to break or violate. So if there's a target on the wall, God sets a target. The law tells us what his target is, and then we aim for it. We try to please the Lord by aiming for it, And what happens is when we aim for it and shoot, many times, for whatever reason, whether it's because of wind or because we didn't aim very good or whatever, we miss the mark. That's what sin means, to miss the mark. Who sets up the standard? Who chooses where the mark is? God does. And so if we miss the mark, it's because we are not holy, we're not perfect like God is. But the law reveals to us God's standard. It doesn't change. So if we don't meet God's standard, the reality is we don't get to be in his presence. If we don't meet God's standard, we cannot be in his presence. And so God doesn't sweep our our standard under the rug and go, well, you know, I guess you can come in anyway. What he does is he says, I will meet you. I will come. I'm not going to meet you halfway. I'm going to do it for you. That's what he did in Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the law all the way. So what was the purpose of the law? It was added because of breaking of the law, because of sin. And it was added because of um, violation of God's law. And then he says, "Till until, until the seed should come to whom, whom the promise was made. So it was supposed to be temporary. It was to keep them confined and safe inside of a fence until Jesus showed up and they could put their faith in him. It's a temporary fix. It was a band aid, if you will. God said, For a time, I'm going to have you live under the law. So, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Then, verse 21 says, Is the law then against the promise of God? Remember, he's comparing the promise to the law. Are they contradictory? Well, the question that he asks, are they contradicting one another, is probably a question that the Judaizers would ask. Is God or has he contradicted himself by giving salvation when he already gave the law? Well, here's the deal God promised Abraham that he would send salvation through him before he ever gave the law. And he says there in verse 17, 430 years. 430 years. Well, wait a minute, from the time, I know there's some of you that may not know this, but there was a time from when Abram was given the promise in Genesis to the time that his descendants landed in Egypt was 200 and something years. I say in something because I'm not sure on the exact number, but it was around 200 years. And then they were in Egypt for 400 years as slaves to Pharaoh. And then some 30 years later, they were given the law on Mount Sinai. You ever seen the movie Ten Commandments? They had the thunderings and the lightnings, and they were given the the law of God. So that's like 630 years. That's not 430. Paul, did you do bad math? Are you so technical, but you didn't do the math? What in the world? Well, many Bible scholars, not myself, I read other people that are smarter than me, said what happened is that he's talking about when the promise was given to Abram, it was passed down to Isaac. And then that promise was reaffirmed to Jacob and in Genesis chapter 46 verse 1 through 4 God reaffirmed his promise to Abram but he did it for Jacob so in Genesis 46 verse 1 it says so Israel took his journey he called him Israel Israel means governed by God Jacob means supplanter or heel catcher basically cheap shot artist you know, Jacob wasn't known for being like this, this great godly guy. He was known for basically doing everything he could to steal, rob, and cheat. But what God called him was Israel after he wrestled with him before they went into the land. So Israel took his journey with all that he had. He came to a place called Beersheba. That's where his fathers had worshipped. And he offered sacrifices to the god of his father, Isaac. So third generation believer, right? Then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, he called him by his real name. Hey, heel catcher. Hey, hey, cheap shot artist. He said, here I am. That's what Jacob answered. And so God said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt and I will also surely bring you up again. See, again, the promise of his presence. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. He thought he lost Joseph when his sons came back from the fields, and they had planned to kill Joseph, but then they sold him into slavery. Long story short, most of the end of the book of Genesis is Joseph going to Egypt, being sold as a slave, and through God's providence... He was raised up, and he became basically the vice president of Egypt, the second in power, like Pharaoh 2. And because he was Pharaoh 2, God gave him wisdom to interpret the dream of Pharaoh, and then the Pharaoh gave him basically governance over the whole nation. And during the time, they had a famine, and Joseph taxed the people, took 20% of their grain, put it in grain bins. They lived off the rest And then after that, they had plenty of food during a seven-year famine. God basically took care of them. He provided. Well, during that time, uh, Jacob thought he had lost more children because they went into Egypt to get some food and then bring it back to the land of Canaan. And when they did that, they lost the younger brother. Joseph kept one of them. Long story short, he's having to go into Egypt to get his son out of there because he loves his youngest son, he already thinks he's lost Joseph, he goes in there to get his son out of there, and he's remembering back, he's worshiping the Lord, and he's like, Lord, I don't need to go back into Egypt, Abraham did it, and, and many times, he almost lost his wife because of it, because he didn't tell him it was his wife, he told him it was his sister, I know I'm kind of overviewing this, but the main purpose is, Jacob doesn't feel like it's right to go back to Egypt, because in the Bible, Egypt is a picture of the world, And they were called out of the world as a special people. So when Jacob's going back in, he's worshiping. He's seeking the Lord to see if this is really God's will. And the Lord affirms to him, I'm going to go with you into Egypt. I'm going to keep you safe there. I'm going to multiply you as a nation. And I'm going to bring you out too. Now, little did Jacob know that would be 400 years later. But the reality is, God reaffirmed his promise. I will bring you out of Egypt. And he did that by the hand of Moses. So many scholars believe that the promise he's talking about here in Galatians is the promise that was made to Jacob, which was the same promise that was made to Abram. So they were in there for 400 years, 30 years after they were delivered into the land. They were in the wilderness wanderings in the time of the book of Numbers. And during that time is when God gave them the law on Mount Sinai. That being said, 430 years. There's where you get it. In case you were wondering, that was a long time to explain 430, but here we are. So I missed that earlier. That's why I kind of went back. So in verse 19 through 22, he says this, what purpose does the law serve? And then in verse 22 through 26, the law, he says, let's just read it. Verse 21 Is the law then against the promises of God? And what he's going to say is basically the law and the promises work together like a concrete form. You ever pour a concrete curb, you need a form on each side, right? If you only have one side, the concrete pours out as a big pile and a lump, and you have to look at it and bust it up with a hammer later. But if you have two sides, the law and the promise, you end up having a beautiful curb that is useful for people to run their tires against. And so we have this here in verse 22, but the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. Who's kept under guard? Prisoners. So it doesn't sound that great, right? But they were kept under guard for their own safety just like a walled city. Old school cities in in these times would have walls all the way around. Jerusalem had a wall all the way around it, not to keep the people imprisoned, but to keep them safe from enemies from without. And so the, the law was the same way. It was something that kept them confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law Kept for the faith, not kept from the faith. The Judaizers are pretty much keeping the people from their faith. But the law was to keep them until the time of faith came along where they would believe in Jesus. So he says, kept for the faith in verse 23, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith but after faith has come we are no longer under a tutor so the law was meant to be a tutor you need a tutor when you're struggling in a in a subject in school right you, you need a little extra help basically so what god did is he said you guys are having a trouble with you're having a big problem sinning against me so rather than you just having to hear from me i'm going to give you specifically the reins by which you're supposed to i'm going to give you the outside fence of your yard so you don't run out into the street. So he gave them the law. And he revealed to them what righteousness means, not to culture, not to our family traditions, not to what we think is right in our own eyes, but according to God's standard. So he gave that as an example. He said, here's the law. And, uh, but here's the deal. The law was meant to be like a mirror in the bathroom. When we get up in the morning, maybe you look in the mirror and you go, hey, I wonder what my face looks like wonder what my hair looks like. Here's the deal. The the mirror is meant to show us what we truly look like. The law is meant to show us what we truly look like spiritually in the eyes of God. But here's the problem. The Judaizers were standing up, looking in the mirror, going, oh, I'm dirty. Well, how do I be saved? I'm going to use the mirror to scrub my face off. Can you use a mirror to clean your face? No, you need... A scrub brush or one of those little loofahs or some soap you don't scrub your face with the mirror so trying to be saved by following the law is like trying to scrub dirt off your face with a mirror it it doesn't work it was never meant to do that that's not what it's designed for it's meant to show us who we really are and so that's what Paul's saying he's saying we don't wash our faces with a mirror do we no instead it's God's grace that cleanses us with the blood of Christ the law shows us that we really are sinners. There is not one baby ever been born that was born not a sinner. It's our nature. It's what we are. <clears throat> the law show, here's what Warren Wiersbe said. He said, the, the law shows a sinner his guilt. Grace shows him the forgiveness that he can have in Christ. The law proves who we are, that we fall short of the glory of God, and Jesus comes along and says, I'm here to save you. I'm here to deal with your sin. I'm here to take the punishment that you deserve so that you can be saved. So, <clears throat> I think this is interesting because we, just a few weeks ago, I got to write a little article for the paper talking about two men in the book of Mark chapter 10. And in Mark chapter 10, there's two people. There's the rich young ruler and then there was blind Bartimaeus. Now, I'm not going to talk about Bartimaeus, but the rich young ruler is a man that came to Jesus because he had kept the law his whole life. The law brought this man, this rich young ruler, to Jesus Christ. He was tutored. The man had followed the law his whole life, had everything he needed, came to Jesus and said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? So though he had kept the law, he still had this dissatisfaction with where he was spiritually. So he came to Jesus and he said, "What do I got to do to inherit eternal life?" And Jesus said, "There's one thing lacking. Take all that you own, sell it and give it to the poor." And many people get all caught up in the fact that is he calling everyone to sell all their stuff? Like I don't know if I can handle that. I got lots of st-. The point is that though this young man would testify of himself, "I've kept the whole law," Jesus said, I'm going to judge you according to the standard you've judged yourself. You haven't kept the whole law. You have a problem with coveting. Because the rich young ruler, we know that he did because he walked away from Jesus sorrowful because he had a lot of stuff. And the Lord said to him, you need to give up that stuff because it's going to, you know, like you are worshiping it. Does that mean that everyone that has stuff worships it? No, it's not the point he's making. In that young man's life, he had a problem with coveting. So had he really kept the law? No. he had only kept the parts that he really liked. (laughs) He hadn't murdered anybody. Hey, that's pretty good, right? That's your standard. That's kind of a lame standard because lots of people haven't murdered anybody. He hadn't committed adultery. Oh, good job. That's a great standard. You know, like he hadn't done all these things that were obvious to him, but he had a problem with coveting. And so the law, my point is, had taken this dissatisfied religious law-keeping man and he came to Christ going, I, don't, I still don't know if I'm saved or not. <laughs> if you can keep the law your whole life and still not know if you're saved. So it did its purpose. It brought this man to Jesus. So verse 27, what do we do about this? After faith has come, verse 20, 25, we are no longer under a tutor. If you start passing your class, do you keep going to the tutor for help? If you pass your class, do you keep going to the tutor for help? No, because you've received the grade. Verse 26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise that God made him. How cool is that? In Christ, you are an heir according to the promise. So just real quick, the law can't do what the promise can do. That's his main purpose of saying all this. The the promise is greater than the law. The law had a purpose, but the promise is greater. So verse 27, we are to put on Christ. The believer has laid aside the dirty garments of sin and by faith received the robes of righteousness in Christ. And they would understand this in Galatia because in Galatia, when they turned a certain age, when children got to be a certain age, they would put off their childhood clothes. These clothes identified them as immature, young people. And then They put on a new garment, which was an adult tunic. So when you put on this adult tunic, everyone knew this person is of age, no matter if they still had zits on their face or not. There was a coming of age where they were all of a sudden mature, and so they were expected to be. There was a standard. They would wear a garment. So Paul says, put on Christ. Put off the works of the flesh, Colossians chapter 3. Put on Christ. The believer becomes a mature adult in Christ, so why go back to the schoolmaster? The law divides and it makes distinctives. Christ unites and brings all to the same level by his grace. Excuse my voice. The prayer of a a devout man in their culture, a Jewish man, would be I uh, thank you, Lord, that I'm not a woman, that I'm not a Gentile dog. I'm trying to remember what the other one was. Uh, if you are Christ, uh, let's see. And that I'm not a slave. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not a slave, that I'm not a Gentile dog, and that I'm not a woman. That's what they would pray. And so what Paul says to them is that if you are in Christ, we're all on the same level. There's no, there's no Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, We are all one in Christ, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, and you are heirs according to the promise. You've inherited what Abraham was promised. Not according to the law, again, but according to what God has promised. And I love that because it's not based on my works. I fail. I'm like Abraham. I fall asleep. And so um, hopefully that unraveled the very specific language he used today let's pray father the book of Galatians is meant I believe to remove the burden that many of us put on ourselves to perform uh, we live in a culture that is uh, so performance evaluation based and yet, Lord I'm so very thankful that you're my Savior that your my my salvation is based on your performance and because you're perfect in every way i don't have to worry a bit so lord i thank you for salvation i thank the, thank you that it can be had in no other name given among women given among men uh, that we can be saved by faith in you alone and yet as we're going to look at in the next coming weeks uh, let us not live in this freedom to the point where it causes us to be okay with continuing in sin Paul's going to give a warning that though we have been freed from the law because Jesus fulfilled it, that we are still um, called to live in a way that brings glory to your name. Help us not to let our freedom give us a license to sin and to live in sinful uh, lifestyles. So, Father, we thank you for this book. We thank you for the strong words of Paul. Uh, (laughs) We know that all of your word is inspiring, and yet some of it is not always as inspiring as others But Lord, more than anything, thank you for releasing the burden that many people try to put on us, saying that we can be saved, but we also need to do X, Y, and Z. Lord, we've been made free. So Lord, help us to live in that freedom. Help us to enjoy our relationship with you, no longer because we have to, but because we've been freed up to love you and be loved by you for who we are. And so Lord, continue to transform us by the renewing of our mind. Continue to change the way that we think about our salvation. Continue to show us the way to walk in this fallen world. We love you and we pray, Lord, have your way in us. And Lord, we thank you that our salvation isn't anything we can earn. Lord, thank you for giving it to us as a free gift. In Jesus' name, amen.